I was thinking that there are moments in this life that will never be forgotten. See, memories that vanish. Certain memories will vanish, but certain moments will never be forgotten. Think about, for a moment, the minutes unremembered. Think about, for a moment, the things that we will always hold on to, those conversations, those experiences, those things that can never be unseen, those things that can never be unheard. Now, what's fascinating is many of those, those eruptive unforgettables, come in a form of a question. Think about it. Those explosive life moments, those explosive life moments come by way of these invisible floating words that feel heavy. They almost feel physical. Think of for a moment questions like, baby girl, will you marry me? (laughs) Think about questions like, should we get a divorce? Think about questions like, do you want to go out sometime? And think about questions like, do you think that we're right for one another? Simple questions, world-altering outcomes. Questions like, what defines me? Or, or am I what I achieve? Should we order a pizza? What is the meaning of life? All pivotal questions. Huffington Post came out with what they deemed the most important question in this life. It was simply, what do you want out of life? I think that is a really great question. And I feel that all of those questions are summits within our life. But I'd argue to say that none of them are the peak. None of them are the peak. See, today, what I'd like to do is be able to discuss huge life questions, yes, but then I'd like to really be able to discuss the course-altering questions. I want to talk about the big ones. I want to talk about the peaks. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that Jesus Christ is? Not was, is. Now, this freight train of a question has been asked for centuries I am not at all blowing anybody's mind today. He's asking who Jesus is. What newness. That is not what is happening right now. From pulpits and preachers, evangelists and poets, from lecterns all the way across our dining room table, this question, who is Jesus, has been asked a lot. Collective Church is not here to reinvent some sort of wheel, to be clever or to you know, paint the, way, the west side black by any means. Simply, though, the breath in our lungs, our life as a church, will consist of asking about, singing to, preaching on, praying in, serving for, and confessing Jesus Christ. The very Jesus who asked about himself in our verses. The only time we have recorded in the Bible where Jesus asked others to speak of his identity. Jesus wants to know the speculation. Jesus, in this moment, wants to know the rumors. He wants to know his reputation. Because as crucial as the question is, it doesn't hold a candle to its answer. 
Jesus is asking one question. Jesus is asking one question, knowing there are this ocean of answers. See, our time, our place, Los Angeles, the West Side, I mean, right? I mean, it's boiling over with blogs on and discussions of and frustrations with, confusion about, tweets tweeted on, all answering the question of who they say Jesus is. Again, think about it. You can't be on a search engine long without coming across some version of Jesus, whether it's South Park's Jesus or Seth MacFarlane's Jesus or Elton's Jesus or Ellen's Jesus or Larry King's Jesus or Martin Luther King Jr.'s Jesus. It's answer after answer after answer. So many radically different from the next. Even the disciples, the disciples, the students, those who Jesus called to follow him, they too share the varying degrees of difference. Look, verse 13, they're sharing in there what they've heard regarding his identity. And he asked his disciples, well, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others say, you know, Jeremiah. Or, or you're just one of the prophets. Now, these responses... These responses are spectacular. These responses about who Jesus is from his disciples are spectacular. Basically, it's Jesus. Bro, you are either one of the most fulfilled men, you know, awaited prophets we have ever just been dying to meet. Or you're just a basic run-of-the-mill, dime-a-dozen, lowbrow prophet. You're either monumental, Jesus, or you're mundane. Jesus, you're either, you know, season one of True Detective or you're season two. It's back and forth. Their answers are all over the place. Now, if you've read the Bible or even just the Gospels on some level, I think you get it. The Jesus of the Bible is basically one giant paradox. He's one giant paradox. And whether you've, you've followed Jesus for decades and you remember Sunday school flannel graph, or this is new to you and you've got some vague idea of who he is, still most, if not all, can still agree that Jesus is a wild, wonderful paradox. The Jesus who asked the people, who do you say that I am, is the same Jesus who crossed these barbed wire fences and he trespassed into cultural taboos. His words disturb others as his presence brings delight. He's the prince of peace, and yet he comes with a sword. He's fully God, and he's fully man. Even his preachings are a reversal of every expectation and societal norm. Think about it. From last to first, he preached on greatness and serving, beauty and meekness, richness and giving, life and death, and love as power. He upset the law keepers, even though he didn't break one law. He, with the joy that set before him, actually looked forward. It was joy for him to endure torture. He's a perfect king who shared meals with hookers and thieves. He embraced children one day, and the next day, he, you know, he, Indiana Jones whipped people out of the temple. And his unstoppable kindness, love, tenderness, mercy, forgiveness falls on both the just and the unjust. 
He loved the undeserving and he loved the unlovable. See, only this type of paradox occurs when God himself cracks open humanity and crawls in. And when that happens, the world is never the same again. No one, not believer or unbeliever alike, can escape it. Even unbeliever H.G. Wells, one of the great prolific authors, imaginative sci-fi guys, authors of our time, he has this very famous quote. He says, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. You see, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah, and some say the most dominant figure in all of history, or you're just one of the prophets. And I believe what all of this shows us, friends, collective church, is that defining Jesus, us defining Jesus, is far more preferable than discovering Jesus. That redefining Jesus fits our lifestyle rather than revealing Jesus. It's like searching, you know, trying to discover Waldo, and instead you draw in a stick figure Waldo and say, found him! (laughs) New York Times columnist uh, Ross Douthat, he helps us understand. Uh, He likens the defining of Jesus, he likens it to a, a New Testament buffet. Or cafeteria Christianity. And he wraps up his thoughts with broken hearted words by simply saying, apparently the only Jesus that really matters is the one that you invent for yourself. I mean, is this not what has happened in our culture? Is this not what has happened with entertainment with Los Angeles, the West Side, our friends, our family, or maybe even some here today? Instead of being a royal priesthood, so many have traded it to become professional inventors. Again, I think we have to ask the question is, are there people here now who have invented a Messiah to their liking? Have you invented a Jesus that rather than redeems our desires, he grants them unreservedly? Like a spiritual, you know, Pez dispenser. Have we invented a Jesus where he can be great, but but, but he can't be God? Have we invented a Jesus who was very historic, but he's not present? Maybe we've invented a Jesus who is a teacher, but he's not ultimate truth. See, despite the paradox, despite everybody in the world thinking that Jesus is a moral trailblazer, Jesus, these claims, you know, he's just a wonderful guru. The problem with these subjective truths and these many, many identities is they're all half-truths. See, it says one commentator said, it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not right ones, a high opinion of him and yet not high enough. See, here's the problem. If Jesus, if we on the west side we can have a Jesus that can be invented and we can have a God that can be carved out of wood, then humanity, then the west side, then our lives reside in a grim and hopeless world. 
we have to see that the man's greatest need is to know what his greatest need is. If it's true that man's greatest trouble is not knowing his greatest need, then it's also true that man's greatest joy is fulfilling his need in Jesus. Friends, let's make this personal. Just as Jesus did in his conversations with his disciples. See, it's easy enough to share opinions of Jesus. Well, he said this and he said this. But it's different. It's a different question. It's a different moment when Jesus' eyes gaze upon you. Gaze, gaze upon me. See, look at verse 15 in Matthew 16. But who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, notice this. It's not, what are people saying about my teaching? It's not, what are people saying about my ministry or my super fly miracles? They start giving him the responses and and, and Jesus is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Who do you say? Okay, that's what they say. Who do you say that I am? And again, one of the disciples by the name of Peter, when he perks up, he kisses the heaven and he just mic drops this moment and it's epic. He goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but I was reading this just thankful I wasn't part of the disciple group at that moment because I would have been confused and I... Gee, don't you know who you, you're the food multiplier or, you know, you're water walker, <laughs> you're big dog JC. But God, the father gives Peter insight. He gives him sight to see. See, not Peter's flesh and blood, a supernatural moment. And Peter, with all boldness, he comes out and says, you are the Christ. The confession is simple and it's short. It's like a stick of dynamite. It's small, but with explosive meaning. So you are the living God's Messiah to the shattered world. You are anointed. You are the king. You are the king. You're the king of heaven and earth. And that applies to us now. You are the king of Santa Monica. You are not some accessory to yoga pants. You are the king of Culver City. You're not a polish on a resume. You are the king of Venice, not a means to, the, to an end. Again, let's really make it so that we never forget Peter's confession. Peter basically just told him, you're it. Whatever it is, that, that, that is you. You are it, Jesus. Jesus, you're the explanation. Jesus, you're the exclamation. Jesus, you are the answer. It's two plus two equals Jesus. You are the X on the treasure map. You are the hero to every play. Jesus, you are it. You are, as the book of Colossians in the New Testament says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created for him, through him and for him. Jesus, you are the reason. You can see with such intensity the Grand Canyon difference between what the world says Jesus is and who heaven says Jesus is. Friends, brothers and sisters, who do you say Jesus is? You knew I was going to ask. Who do you say Jesus is? 
Not what your professors answer. Not, not, what is, not what your parents answer. Not what your pastors answer. Who do you say Jesus is now in this moment? There's this rad old um, hymn, which is very poetic and punchy, and I wanted to share it tonight. It says, what think you of Christ is the test. To try, to try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. If asked what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and drink, my life and my strength and my store. See, when that question is answered, like Peter answered it, that you are everything, when Jesus is someone's life and their strength and their meat and drink and he is the answer and their hope, transformation it takes place. For the disciple Peter, upon identifying Jesus as the Christ, Jesus then returns, um, identifies him. Jesus then in returns identifies who Peter is. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. I tell you, you are Peter. You are a rock. You are Dwayne Johnson, the rock. I mean, that's who you are, Peter. Friends, what this shows us is that once we answer the most important question in life of who is Jesus, then the second most important question who am I, steps into the light. Who am I, all of my priorities, my sense of worth, my uniqueness, my security, all of my identity is in Jesus and what he has done for me. Or, it's an invented Jesus and what we say it'll do for us. See, by identifying Jesus as the Christ, we identify ourselves. However you've answered that question, you have then identified yourself. Again, I'm not saying everything will be daisies and puppies. But when Jesus is present, we can be courageous. When Jesus is our identity and he is our shepherd, then we can be led to still waters and greener pastures. When Jesus is Lord of my life, when Jesus is Lord of our life, then we have assurance and solid rock security. Because Jesus is safe, thus we can be vulnerable and open. Jesus is a lover of our soul, thus we can respond and react of love. Jesus is head of the church, thus I am a part of the body. Jesus is the Messiah, and I have been saved from my animosity between me and God, and I have brought near to God. See, Jesus is the substitute, and I have been spared. See, if Jesus is the Christ, then we have our answer, and our hope, and our ambition, and our goal. And it's upon all of that, It's upon all of that that Jesus says these words. Look at verse 17 again. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on that rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I tell you what. I don't know how many people here have have started a church or planted a church before. It's it's insane. It's insane. Especially this past month. I mean, you've got this gnarly checklist you're running down. 
rent storage and signing leases and rounding up volunteers and I got to buy kids goldfish. I mean, it's a lot of work. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, what I'm struggling with the most is because this crazy dark fog rolls over and covers an extremely important word in that verse. And I was blinded to it this week, this month for some reason, and that's I will build my church. It's one of those truths that you know, but in the moment you're just functionally just like, no, I've just got to get this done. I've got to build the church. Jesus saying, I am building my church. Akuna Matata, Casey. I am building my church. You see, Jesus is the architect. Jesus is the designer. I just want to slow down and make this point because the church is, is his. The church is his. It's Jesus builds his church. And so for this being our very first church gathering, we wanted to lay this foundation of who is Jesus, who am I, and what is the church. The Jesus, Jesus is, is the architect. He's the designer. He is the head of this church. He is the husband to this church. He is the, the chief shepherd to this church. See, there's no separating Christ from the church or a relationship with Christ from a local commitment to a church. To think that Jesus can be separated or that Jesus doesn't want us in some sort of redeemed community that we've been saved into is to then to yet again invent a Jesus of our choosing. See, both universal and local churches are built on the proclamation that Peter made that Jesus is the explanation of this church. collective church, its leadership, its ministries, its people, its success and dreams must in every effort continually ask, who is Jesus? Continually ask, who is Jesus? And we will strive for our existence in spending a lifetime answering the question, he is the Christ. And because of that, nothing will stop Jesus' church. This church, the church, has no address. It's not dependent upon brick and mortar to hold it up. It doesn't rise and fall with imperfect people and pastors. And as people confess Jesus as Lord, just as Peter did, that is Jesus building his church. That is Jesus building his church. When people confess Jesus as the Christ, that is the church growing. Collective church is not confined to university height or its leaders, or its mission statement. But we want everybody to know, moving forward, who we are as a a church. Collective church has air in its lungs. We have blood in our veins because, again, we now and pray that forevermore we'll confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen?